Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Roz Taylor. Mr. Beast is a YouTube phenomenon. This is a bathtub full of snakes. Hey there, little guy. If any of you sits in this tub of snakes, I'll give your mom $10,000. While he was bothering snakes and eating giant pizzas, Mr. Beast, real name Jimmy Donaldson from Kansas, didn't cause a lot of controversy beyond the world of preteens and their parents. But now he's moved into philanthropy. In this video, we're curing a thousand people's blindness. It's going to be crazy. That video's had 107 million views. Mr. Beast paid for a thousand people to have surgery that restored their sight. Not everyone was happy about a YouTube influencer getting into the philanthropy business. Mr. Beast, critics said, was just interested in boosting his reputation, doing performative charity. But shouldn't we be glad to see an influencer getting a conscience? Rodri Davis is the founder and director of Why Philanthropy Matters and a research fellow at the University of Kent. Welcome to the bunker, Rodri. Like me, you were aware of Mr. Beast through your kids, I think. Were you surprised when he made this swerve? Yeah, I was aware of Mr. Beast mostly, as you say, in trying to stop my kids wanting to to watch him. I was quite a, a naysayer. And then he crossed over into my professional sphere as he started getting into philanthropy. I guess I, I was surprised, although actually the, the leap from a lot of what he was already starting to do in terms of competitions that had cash giveaways wasn't that enormous. It's only a, a small step from giving prizes for people doing kind of dares and challenges to just giving people money because you've spotted that they have a need, I guess. What do you think his motives are? I think it's, it's really hard to say. It's, it's hard to say with any philanthropist because... I think what people say about why they give and even their own understanding of it is often pretty limited. I think you can look at what he does and what he said about it and then make some informed guesses. And I think to me, it's probably a few things. I think he started doing this stuff and like a lot of donors, he found that it's really rewarding. There's a kind of warm glow to giving. And I think knowing that you can genuinely change people's lives is pretty addictive I think slightly more cynically, he probably realised it doesn't do his reputation any harm and he wouldn't be the first philanthropist to have cottoned onto that idea. And then I guess finally, the thing that's really interesting about Mr. Beast is he realised that actually people really like watching this stuff and so he could actually make money out of giving money away, which he might be the first ever donor to have discovered how to do that. Because he's a pretty crass guy normally, it has to be said. <laughs> Some of the things he's done, as you say, are not necessarily ones that I'd want my 10-year-old to be watching. Does that make it hard to stomach this move? I mean, in a way, yes. And, and that's really my sticking point on the whole thing and the thing that I have to kind of get past to analyse this professionally. And I think a lot of the problem with his most recent video, the one about curing blindness, a lot of it is just down to distaste at the general tone of it and the aesthetics, particularly when you're talking about something as kind of uh, as sensitive as as uh, kind of life-changing illnesses. Um, I think, you know, 
it's not just the way that he does that in his philanthropy videos. It's obviously more broadly, as you say, in all of his videos, he does this sort of squid game things and these kind of big giveaways and people find all that a bit game showy and, and tacky. I guess the only reason I've maybe made peace with it is I realized it, it isn't to my taste, but fundamentally he's promoting the idea of doing good to other people and the idea that maybe when you have some money, you should think about giving some way to help other people. And that does seem better than quite a lot of other things that you could be getting in terms of messages off YouTube at the moment. So maybe it's not all bad. Is this something that happens with philanthropists? Because he's a very rich man now at the age of only 24. Has he suddenly started to feel that he owes society something? Is there a bit of guilt going on there? What's the mindset of people who make this switch? I, th I think it's that's a really interesting question. I think certainly in terms of people who've made money rather than inheriting it, they do tend to have more of a sense of wanting to have control over giving it away and maybe more ease with giving it away because they feel like they made it in the first place. I think that mention of guilt's interesting as well because um, particularly when you've made that much money that quickly, I do wonder if if Mr Beast has a sort of nagging sense that maybe it's all slightly ridiculous that he's able to be that rich at the age of 24 and certainly there's an interesting video where he one of his early videos where he gives ten a hundred thousand dollars i think to his own mum um, and at first she sort of says no i don't want to accept it and he eventually convinces her and his argument is basically look if you don't accept this money i, I won't be able to make any money off going viral and he's like you know that's just the economics of, of youtube and it's a lot easier to make this much money than you might think and so he's kind of aware, I think, that he's come into all of this money through, you know, some skill and, and some luck and just being in the right place at the right time. But I do think he feels a slight drive to, to do something worthwhile with it. And that's probably to be applauded. It's interesting, the mother thing, actually, because in the snakes video, which we heard clipped briefly earlier, he actually says uh, this will be $10,000 to your mums, you know, not not to these young men who are actually doing it. But there's, there's something about it that makes it more palatable, isn't it, when it's to your mum than when it's to actually some young man who might actually not, not spend it in the best way possible. Yeah, and I think there's, you know, I've, I've been watching more and more of these uh, videos recently off the, the back of the, the kind of recent controversy about the, the Curing Blinds video. And, and it's not to my taste, but there is a slight self-deprecating element to Mr. Beast, I think, and he is kind of aware that he is a young man who doesn't necessarily know anything and he certainly defers to his own mum and I think in general maybe kind of recognises that he's still got plenty to learn. Are there other YouTube influencers who are getting into philanthropy as well? Yeah there are I think Mr Beast's definitely leading the way in terms of being the most prominent but um, there's certainly been a few over the last few years and at the moment so um, Mr Beast himself's partnered with a guy called Mark Rober who's a popular science YouTuber and they've worked together on two big projects, one called Team Seas and one called uh, Team Trees, which, as the names would suggest, one was about marine conservation and, and picking up beach litter, and another was about tree planting. There's another guy called Mr. Borland, who's a, a, a kind of true crime YouTuber who's launched his own foundation. There's quite a lot of gaming influencers. So people like, there's an Irish guy called Jack Septicai, who does a lot of fundraising streaming events on Twitch and YouTube. And then interestingly, there's also more controversial YouTubers as well. So some people might have heard of um, PewDiePie, also known as Felix Kjellberg, who's a Swedish YouTuber um, who got in a lot of hot water a few years ago for, for some fairly unpleasant comments he'd made in the past. But he also has raised a lot of money for charities and kind of continues to do so, which, you know, brings its, its own questions, I think. What sort of causes are they supporting these YouTubers? 
I think as with philanthropy, you know, in the round, it's a real mix. I guess one thing you can tell is for those like Mr. Beast who make the philanthropy and the fundraising part of the videos themselves, there's an obvious emphasis on things that look good on film. So you tend to get tangible things like buildings, food parcels or medical procedures and ones that work at an individual level. So you can have compelling footage of Mr. Beast turning up and, and meeting all these incredibly grateful recipients. I think for some of the others who are just doing what they do anyway, but using it to fundraise, that's a bit different because then they can they don't have to have as direct a link and it's not as reliant on the thing being telegenic. Although I would guess they still give a lot of thought to what are the causes and the organizations that are going to appeal to my fans as well. And and maybe some of them also kind of engage their fans in choosing where the money goes just to kind of get them even more bought into the whole thing. How should we feel about this kind of ostentatious giving? Because Mr. Beast could have chosen to make charity donations completely on the quiet, or he could have just said, I'm going to make this donation and not made a video about it. But this is very full on. Uh, it's It's performative without wanting to be too negative about it. Have people in the past often been very performative about the way they give money? I guess the interesting question is, where does it tip over from being open and transparent with your giving to being performative? Because there's always been a bit of a tension in, in philanthropy between the desire on the one hand for anonymity, both from the, the donors themselves who might want to keep it quiet because they don't want to be uh, hassled for fundraising or because you know religious teachings tell them that that's the best way of doing things. And also from everyone else who sort of feels like it's more genuine philanthropy if you don't make too much fuss about it. But then on the flip side, we also want wealthy people surely to be open about the fact that they're doing this in order to encourage others to follow suit and to kind of create a bit of peer pressure. The challenge is where, as you say, you start to suspect that people talking about it and being open about it becomes a form of PR or performance rather than than being uh, driven by pure emotives. I think, you know, historically, we haven't been very keen on ostentatious giving here in the UK. We tend to be quite, you know, we don't really like talking about money full stop. We're not particularly keen about talking about people giving away their money. I think that's a big cultural difference between here and somewhere like the US where, you know, there's a lot said about the differences between the US and the UK when it comes to philanthropy, and not all of it's always accurate. But one thing that's definitely true is there's a much more clear culture of sort of overt giving and expectation of giving in the US. People are much more comfortable self-defining as philanthropists. And I guess the other thing is, at the level of you or I, sort of everyday givers, actually more and more in lots of other areas of our lives, we're keen to sort of put on a show on social media and present our lives in a certain way. And certainly what we do for charity, our giving and our volunteering is part of that. So people are increasingly quite open, if not in some cases performative about, about their generosity. And one of the people who's been like that or was like that is Sam Bankman-Fried, isn't it? The crypto guy who it's all gone terribly wrong for, obviously. But he was, he said, making money in order to give away money. What's going on there? Well, that, that's a whole other podcast in itself almost. But yeah, he's a fascinating figure. And as you say, became very prominent as a philanthropist in quite a short space of time. And just, you know, people were surprised by how much wealth he was making. 
And his narrative about philanthropy was fascinating because he very much emphasized his own kind of almost ascetic monk-like lifestyle and driving a kind of cheap car and, and making a point that he was giving all of this money away to charity. And it, it subsequently turns out that was not as, as true as he might have had it. And he was actually living a fairly lavish lifestyle. I mean, he was very much bought into a whole philosophy of giving called effective altruism, which is about taking away the point of view of the donor and what they want to do and sort of thinking, how do you just objectively in an almost utilitarian way, just do the most good with the money that you've got. And part of that school of thought is that actually one of the best things to do if you're the sort of person who can make a lot of money working in cryptocurrency or in a hedge fund is to go off and do that, regardless of you know whatever harm that might do to the world more widely. Just make lots and lots of money doing that and then give that away to charities. And the concern with Bankman Freed is that he took this idea to its logical extreme and essentially ended up defrauding lots and lots of people because he and those around him believed that this was justified by some higher philanthropic goal. So yeah, it's a fascinating story. And effective altruism, of course, is very different from the kind of giving that Mr. Beast has been doing. I mean, is there a risk that influencers choose photogenic, social media friendly causes like this one, albeit very worthwhile, that are fixable? Whereas a lot of human suffering is unattractive and hard to fix. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the, the contrast there between effective altruism as almost the kind of exemplar of the, the big top-down model of philanthropy that's very much about rationality and doing things at, you know, at a sort of institutional systemic level and what Mr. Beast's doing, which is almost taking it back to the old idea of individuals giving directly to other individuals um i think that's a really interesting contrast and it goes to something that kind of runs through the whole history of philanthropy which is this tension between the head on the one side and the heart on the other the kind of you know the the formalized bit and the bit that's more informal and in some ways what mr beast's doing i think there are positives to it and that maybe if he's if he's reminding people of the importance of that human connection uh, and the needs to kind of take that into account and not get too carried away with your grandiose visions of uh, how the world needs to be in these sort of convoluted philanthropic schemes. Maybe that's not the worst thing. But I think the problem is we have that suspicion that that actually he is only really engaging at that human level because it turns out that's what gets clicks and likes. I think if people felt as though that human connection was genuine, they might be more willing to, to kind of give him the benefit of the doubt. And with that most recent video where he he kind of talked about curing a thousand people of blindness, I think the problem was for a lot of people, that's where it tipped over into seeming a bit exploitative and cynical. We've been talking about philanthropy in the US, where, as you say, it's a lot more established than it is in the UK. But how has it changed in the UK in recent years? Has it changed? It has. I mean, I always just because I'm a, a history of philanthropy nerd, I think that the idea that that it's more developed in the US needs to be challenged slightly and that we actually have a much longer history of it and a lot of what we have done over here shaped what happened in the US. I think it is true that it got amplified and made bigger over there, certainly in the early 20th century and has then kind of reflected back. I think what we've seen recently in the UK, there are definitely some changes. I think you know, people are more willing to talk about their philanthropy. So going to what we were saying earlier about, about sort of transparency and, and people being willing to talk about money. And certainly, in, even in the time I've been working in philanthropy for the last 20 years or so, 
the change in terms of people just being willing to put their heads above the parapet has been enormous. I think over a longer period than that, there's been a real shift away from inherited wealth, which was probably the dominant uh, model in the UK, towards more created wealth as well. I think as a result, we've also seen a much more diverse range of people emerging as philanthropists, certainly in a kind of younger generation of philanthropists, where there are far more women and people from minority backgrounds than, than there might have been in the past when all of the wealth was very much in the hands of older white men. I think the other thing we've seen is a more professionalized philanthropy sector emerging. So there are more advisors out there who can kind of give people advice on where to give and how to give. And also fundraisers are getting more professional about knowing how to look for philanthropy and how to, to kind of deal with wealthy people and encourage them to give. So I think in all of those ways, it's starting to look more like the, the US philanthropy scene. And there's another way in which I think it's starting to look more like the US in that over the last 15 years, the UK's welfare state has been eroded. The state does less. There's more, even more space for charitable giving and philanthropy. Is that playing into the decisions people are making yet, do you think? I think this is another really interesting but really complicated question because I think that relationship between state provision of welfare and, and philanthropic provision is one that's really important, but often a bit misunderstood. I think often it's seen as a simple either or, you know, you get more philanthropy and therefore you have less need of the state or you have a bigger state and therefore there's less philanthropy. I think if you look around the world at levels of giving in different countries compared to the size of the state, it's actually a much more uh, confusing picture. And it's certainly not as clear as more state equals less philanthropy. And I think when you look backwards in the UK as well, the the actual story is one where state and philanthropy have existed alongside each other since the year dot and the, the balance of power and what we expect of them has shifted backwards and forwards over time but it's it's never been an either or thing it's definitely true though as you say that in the last 10 15 years we have seen you know with with kind of uh, policies of austerity and just general uh, reductions in level of public spending a real pinch on uh, on needs and provision of services at, at a local level and a national level. And so understandably, philanthropists have been called upon to step in to, to cover services that otherwise might go by the wayside. And also, I think policymakers, uh, some of them have sort of started to look to philanthropy as an alternative when they themselves don't have money in their budgets anymore to pay for things. This is really problematic, I think, from the point of view of philanthropists, they tend not to be very keen on the idea that their giving should be a replacement for things the state should be providing. That's not something that drives most philanthropists. And I think many of them are quite wary about the danger that in responding to very clear needs and wanting to help people, they end up being part of the problem by sort of letting the state or the government off the hook for decisions they've made about public spending. So what we're seeing is quite a few philanthropists trying to square that circle by funding the delivery of services on the one hand, but at the same time speaking out and funding campaigning and advocacy work to try and raise awareness of the underlying issues and problems so that they're not kind of letting the government off the hook for some of those policy decisions that have been made. I'm interested in why people who could give don't give, as well as why they do. Is there a feeling that taxes are too high in this country 
or, or that the tax breaks that you get as a result of giving aren't big enough? Or is there another perhaps more complicated thing going on in terms of people not wanting to admit to how wealthy they are? I mean, a lot of people, a lot of wealthy people use offshore trusts to effectively conceal their wealth. Does that play into it as well? I think it's there's elements of all of those things. I would say with with tax, again, I think tax can be a factor in determining how much people give. I think from all of the research I've seen, it's very rarely, if ever, a factor in deciding whether or not people do give. That almost always comes down to some personal experience of you know, illness of a relative or loved one or something uh, in their upbringing that's kind of taught them about the importance of giving. That's the thing that gets you to the starting line. And then how much tax you pay and, and how much you can get relief on through your giving might help you decide how much uh, in terms of amounts. So I think, you know, from from that point of view, tax is a slight red herring. I think in terms of why people say that they don't give, it often tends to be more things like people claiming that they find it difficult to find good organisations that they can have trust in. I think a lot of people claim that that are uh, sort of concerned that there's a lot of waste in the charity sector and that they find it difficult to trust organisations to spend money effectively is is given as as a reason. I think there's a danger it's sometimes a bit of an easy excuse and that maybe that's kind of hiding other factors. I think there is something in the fact that, as you say, people don't necessarily want to uh, accidentally put their heads above the parapet as being wealthy through becoming known as donors because they're worried that that will subject them to further public scrutiny or open them up to lots and lots of fundraising in the future. Um, so I think, you know, that's also something that that people are concerned about. And then also, I think it's weirdly true that people often, even when they are objectively very wealthy, their perception of their own wealth is not doesn't always match up to that. So people's understanding of where they sit in relation to other people is often quite skewed. And people have to be able to understand their own level of wealth and quite how wealthy they are in relation to other people before they can feel comfortable giving large amounts of money away. And that can be a challenge for some people. Rodri, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. And if you want to know more about the history of philanthropy, Rodri has written a book, Public Good by Private Means, about just that. Is contributing to the bunker a philanthropic act? Probably not, if we're honest, but it keeps us in work and we hope it keeps you thinking. If you'd like to chip in, just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Ros Taylor and thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Roz Taylor. The producers were Alex Reese and Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Bunker.